Hello, you're listening to Sending the Experts with Georgina Durrant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. My name is Georgina Durrant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher and SENCO myself, I wanted to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners with SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in whilst walking your dog or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Helen Evans and Jilly Davies from the PDA Society. Helen is the Chief Executive of the PDA Society and Jilly is the Education lead. Hi, how are you both? Hi. Thank you. Yeah, lovely to be here today. Thanks for inviting us. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. We'll start straight away, just in case, because there will be people listening who are thinking, what is this episode about? What is what does PDA stand for? So tell us straight away, what what is PDA? Oh, well, thank you for the chance to explain that. Um, So PDA stands for Pathological Demand Avoidance, and it's widely but not universally understood to be a profile of autism. And it involves the avoidance of everyday demands and the use of social strategies to do this. So Mm -hmm. autistic children, I think it's always important to begin with this, autistic children with PDA profile have many strengths. So a strong sense of social justice, being independent, charismatic, creative, compassionate, humorous, imaginative tenacious Um, but there are also things they struggle with which are everyday demands like eating drinking getting dressed just because they're demands and this can include things that they enjoy like playing their favorite game so it's not a deliberate choice it's a matter of can't not won't with demands causing anxiety triggering a fight flight freeze response if they can't be avoided Um, but pervasive demand avoidance is just one trait and there are others as well So PDA children commonly use social strategies to avoid everyday demands like distraction, procrastinating, excusing themselves, withdrawing into role play or fantasy. And they can also appear sociable on the surface, but lack a depth in understanding. So experiencing excessive mood swings, impulsivity, they might have Mm -hmm. obsessive behavior focused often on other people and sometimes not always may appear comfortable in role play and pretend sometimes to an extreme extent. So I think we always think it's important to talk about here the whole profile because sometimes yes. people might focus on the demand avoidance um, and miss actually that there's a there's a profile to PDA. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think you're, you're completely right that we need to focus on the whole child in a sense and some of the positives it may bring as well as some of the challenges they face. I think that's really important. So So I get the correct terminology, and I know we discussed this before the podcast as well, but what is the preferred terminology when we're talking about PDA? When I'm referring to a child, what what should I say? (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because language is so important and so powerful. So, you know, the PDA community is a diverse group of people, and they've got different preferences as to what terminology they prefer. So some people feel that the term pathological demand avoidance is accurate and appropriate, as the demand yeah. avoidance they experience is innate and all-consuming. But others reject that pathologizing of PDA and prefer to say things like pervasive drive for autonomy. Or my son, for mm-hmm. example, he likes pretty darn Austin. And at the PDA Society, we, we tend to say autistic with the PDA profile or a PDA yeah. person. And that's in keeping with the wider autistic community. So you'd never say a person with autism, just as we wouldn't yeah. say a person with PDA. And I I think any, you know, um, people listening to this, I'd say it's so personal and I'd encourage everyone to ask their learner, you know, what terminology do they prefer to begin that conversation and then to use that terminology for them? 
that's a really good point actually I'm thinking everyone is unique aren't they so thinking about what they would prefer as a person is a really nice like yeah in that way and yeah, finding think, out their preferred terminology yeah have that conversation with them give that opportunity for them to say what, what works for them. so can you tell us a bit about your backgrounds both of you so Julie and Helen like what why why did you decide to work for the PDA society do you have personal interest is this something like yeah tell me tell me yeah, where does it come sh- from shall I go first Julie and then I'll hand over yeah. to you Yep. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So um, I'm autistic, and my son is autistic with a PDA profile. Yeah. And my son was first diagnosed as autistic and ADHD, and I did everything I thought was the right thing to do. So I got loads of you know great sort of visual diaries, and yeah. um, focused on structure and routine, and he hated it, and he oh, was really struggling, and every day was telling me that through distressed behaviour. And um, a year later, I had a clinician say to me, I think your son has a PDA profile. Um, And I wasn't familiar with that. I went away and did what everyone did, Googled, found the PDA Society. And it gave me that, I describe it like a key to unlocking that understanding about my son and really individualizing the approaches I was taking to support him as an autistic person, which are different to mine. And it just transformed um, how we are with each other and our own understanding. And he now doesn't express himself through distressed behavior daily. You know, things have come on so much. Um, and as a result, when an opportunity came up, the PDA Society just thought, wow, how fabulous to to work for an organisation that's helped me and my son so much. Um, yeah. So I joined summer last year. So that's my... That's uh, really... I was just going to say, though, that must have been really hard, it, being autistic yourself. I bet you thought, you know, I'm autistic. I, I'm going to know how to support my son if yeah. he's autistic as well. It must have been quite an eye-opener for you, realising that there was, there was something different, something... Yeah, that must have been... Yeah. Really, I, Oh gosh, so for me, for me, a good holiday is one which has a spreadsheet, and I literally do this <laughs> with uh, colour coding for the different themes we're going to have throughout the day. Oh, I love um, this. Yeah, normally, sort of, it's like you know, have an hour, and then some little slots in between. My son, that would drive him crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like extent to which I'm, I'm taking away that you know the um you know he's much more in the moment. He needs things to be much more sort of responsive and reactive to what's going on. Um, he needs things to be much more direct I like to be I like things to be direct I like things to be very ordered and structured and planned I like to know ages in advance if I do that with my son it doesn't work at all um so yeah it's been a real learning journey for us both um yeah and I'm still learning and I'm I'm learning so much from him uh, as much as you know the other way (laughs) the other way around yeah absolutely um Jilly then what's what's your background then why why are you interested in PDA um yes okay so I've worked specifically with PDA learners for about 18 years that was within wow. a school run by the National Autistic Society yeah we first came across PDA I suppose back in 2004 where yeah. we had a few children we were really struggling to engage them in learning you know we thought we had enough knowledge supporting our autistic learners that those, yeah. you know, those traditional autism good practice that we know so well, but um, this approach just seemed to cause them just more stress and anxiety. And one of those children actually had a PDA diagnosis at that time, and the others didn't fit. And then the other children we had sort of fitted that PDA profile as much as we knew. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, those kids taught me so much. Um, and actually, all the children I've worked with is where I've sort of got my knowledge from. Yeah. Um, but back then, when I researched how best to support these young people, I came across um, the PDA Society. Thank goodness. 
<laughs> and even yeah. then the resources and the advice on their website was invaluable to me as a teacher and, and to the school as a whole. So during those years of working, I then met some of the trustees at various mm-hmm. conferences and I retired from school life three years ago, contacted the society, offered to be a volunteer, which they accepted. Um, I'm now a trustee and education advisor Brilliant. for them. So I think for me, if I can share um, what I've learned with other teaching professionals, uh, you know, yeah. regarding ideas and suggestions, because often their their toolkit is pretty much empty, you know, as yeah, to yeah. what to do with these young people. And so how best to support them, then hopefully these youngsters will have a much happier and a safer time in school and maybe yeah. be able to reach that full potential, you know, whatever that may look like. Yeah, so, oh, that's fantastic. It's great yeah. that you've got such a diverse um, group of people in the PDA society as well. Like you've got, like yourself, Helen, who you've got experience from a personal point of view with your son and being autistic yourself. And then you've got people like Jilly who have got the experience of teaching children um, with a PDA profile. That's really good. I like it. So, <laughs> Jilly, then, can you tell me how how might a PDA learner present in a classroom then? Because there will be teachers listening, thinking, okay, is there somebody in my classroom then? Am, am I not aware of them? I know personally, and I know I said this at the start of the, at the podcast um, before we started recording, I actually, I'm 10 years ago, I was teaching a girl and I won't give her too much information because it's not my story to tell. But um, I, looking back after having done quite a lot of research recently about PDA, looking back, she was she was definitely autistic and I'm pretty certain she had a PDA profile and I feel like I let her down if I'm honest like I felt quite upset when I was reading about PDA and I thought oh gosh that was her and I didn't have the toolkit I didn't have the knowledge I didn't nobody it wasn't even in I I didn't know about PDA at all at that point and yeah I feel like she was let down and it's it's quite upsetting really so so this doesn't happen um how how might PDA learners present in the classroom yeah, so Georgina, I have to say I was the, the same as you in terms yeah. of, you know, I feel when I was learning, I did actually let, you know, perhaps some kids down because I yeah. was trying to um, fit them into our, our box at school yeah. and that wasn't going to work. But um, just let me tell you about the first child I met. Um, yes, he do. came in smiling, he was cheeky, he was funny, he was articulate, he was bright. But very quickly, I was very wrong-footed by his ability to charm, um, to manipulate, and excuse me for using that word, but that's what it felt like to me at the time, um, and how confident he was about taking the lead in in class. Uh, And when he refused, he was very calmly refusing to do anything I asked him to, um, and he was very confident in that. so what did I do as a teacher? I used those positive approaches. I used rewards, visuals, incentives, positive yeah. praise, those special interests to engage. Um, that didn't work. So no. then as a teacher, I thought, right, okay, consequences, warnings, talks with the family, you know, stricter, firmer boundaries. Uh, and the result was just volcanic, you know, it, yeah. it just didn't work. Um, I was called all the names under the sun. He was abusive to the other children then. Yeah. Um, he became quite cool and unkind and actually took over the role of teacher. <laughs> so yeah. I knew everything was very wrong in what I was doing. But then I've also had kids who've come in kicking, screaming, that that, that sort of extrovert behaviour, but also young people who are uh, internalising their anxiety, perhaps, you know, due to maybe masking. Yeah. So 
all these kids are unique and really actually there's no clearly defined way with okay. PDA. I don't know if people want to hear that. <laughs> it makes no, it more yeah. difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, in which PDA learners would present in the classroom. But, the, but some key points is they may not present in a way that might make you suspect autism, you know, if they haven't got the diagnosis. Yeah. So I think when considering the child as a learner, it is important to remember that not all the key characteristics that Helen mentioned are present in every PDA child and yeah. that children can be affected to a greater or a lesser degree. So that degree of support that you know a child may need will vary. But we ha- also have to take in other factors such as their personality, their intelligence, yeah. their interests, any sort of co-occurring conditions. Mm-hmm. And certainly in education settings, any previous educational history, which can well have a really disruptive um experience for them which just makes them very untrusting of the school system and of staff until they can build that trust so I think that's one point I think what's also confusing is 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 that often a learner's demand avoidance can vary at different times with different people and at different stages in their lives Um, but I think it's almost always the case though that their demand avoidance will cause them to function just below their potential for a lot of the time. So uh, how else can I say? One of the first things is they can present very differently at school compared to home, perhaps due to masking, which then leads to misunderstandings between home and school. You know, we hear that a lot. Yes, that sort of, they're doing fine in school, you don't need to worry. And then the parents are like, but at home we're having real difficulty, then they blame themselves. We spoke to Kathy from the Autistic Girls Network on the podcast um, a few months ago, and she said a similar thing about masking with autistic girls in particular, and that sort of being in school seeming to be absolutely fine and then they're not fine at all it's just that they're masking and they're hiding it at school either consciously or subconsciously absolutely and parents you know not being believed um, and sent on parenting courses which don't do any good at all so I think you'll see a learner that's got a very very spiky profile yeah both cognitively socially and emotionally but that ability to complete a task is often sort of far more than just their academic ability. So it could be they're very anxious, even more anxious at that time. It could be just the time of the day, any distraction that may be happening, they may be tired. And actually just the presentation of a task could all have a huge impact on helping that young person engage. Yeah, I think generally speaking, they've got really poor self-esteem, maybe because of their disruptive education, but they do that lack that self-esteem and they do find that emotional regulation really difficult uh they're not going to be kids who'll cope with structured lessons on emotions um because they really can't understand how they're feeling or what's happening um the kids who are quite ambivalent about success they're not not bothered to achieve or not sometimes i've noticed that with some of our young people um, they want friendships, they really, really do, but um, th- that can often be sabotaged because of that need for control. Yeah. So that they've got really quite, I think, quite a poor understanding how to navigate that social pathway and those interactions, which, you know, are so tough um, in, in school settings. Yeah. Um, you might see a child who will engage extensive, extensively in fantasy, pretend and role play. Mm-hmm. Um and often that's quite blurred. 
sometimes between reality and fantasy. Okay. Helen mentioned that they, they use a range of social strategies to um, as part of avoidance. This isn't just saying a defiant no. You yeah. know, they are masters at using that, that, that social language. And I said earlier with the first boy I met, they, they can appear to have those good language skills, but social use of language, yeah. it lacks that depth of understanding, I think. Yeah, wow, um, it's, quite, it's quite complex, isn't it? Yeah, I think these, and say they won't present in all, you know, all the children that we come across, but these are yeah. certainly key features that I've sort of found. Um, mm. I think where they struggle again is they lack a sense of social responsibility. You know, so the rules apply to others, but not to them. Okay. Um, and that gets them, you know, can get them, you know, in great difficulty in schools. So they may not confer any automatic respect based on someone's age or someone's position in yeah. hierarchy, such as, you know, the teacher or the, the head teacher. So I think often they see themselves as equal to adults. Right. So that that makes sense why a lot of the That's, conflict can happen. Yeah, and if, if they're seeing themselves as an equal with an adult, you know, I yeah. feel a bit funny if an adult <laughs> was bossing me about, you know, if my, one of my equals at work yes. was then starting to, to tell me stuff to do all the time. Yes. Yeah, you know, we had, we had a boy, a nine-year-old boy who dictated how we sat on a chair, where we put our feet, where a position of our hands. And, um, you know, when you think about it, does that really matter? If that helps him, yeah, reduces anxiety and helps him to learn, so so what? Does it really yeah. matter, you know? No, absolutely. Um, You've got to think about what the goal of the, yeah. what the, goal of the lesson is and yeah, their learning at yeah, school. Yeah. yeah. And I so, think, obviously, the difficulties with attendance, you know, this is key, yes. key, yeah. key as well. Which makes sense on the back of all the yeah. other things. So yeah. if a parent or a teacher listening to this thinks they, they've got a child in their care or their child that they parent um, is presenting with a PDA profile, how can they go about getting them diagnosed? And is it is it a good idea to get diagnosed? I presume it is. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's a, a really important question. Um, so as I was saying before, our understanding that the PDA Society is that PDA is a profile of autism. So the starting yeah. point would be seeking a, an a assessment for autism. And right. that can depend on the, the age of the child, whether that takes place within a, a paediatric setting if they're younger, or for um, older within a CAM setting, which stands for child child, adolescent and mental health services. Um, the reality is, though, it is really hard right now in the UK to get an assessment. And we yeah. know a lot of parents can be waiting um, a year, more than a year. In some cases, we're hearing a three years plus. Yeah, yeah, that's um, what I'm hearing too. It's not good, yeah. is it? And, that, and that's in- incredibly tough because then um, parents are facing a choice about do you wait um, or do you use um, personal funds to pay for a, a private assessment? And then that creates a two-tier system between those who can yeah. afford an assessment and, and those who can't. Um, so that is, is unfortunately where we are at the moment. And then if you uh, get an autism assessment, the question is, will they identify a PDA profile? Yeah. And it's a real um, postcode lottery across the UK at yeah, the moment. <laughs> this is what I've heard. I've heard personally people I know who've said, you know, they've they've tried to, they've, they've got local authorities that just aren't even recognising it yeah, as, as a profile. And, which and we, is, yeah, we yeah. talked before there about, um, uh, you know, PDA, relatively speaking, being a, a newish term. And yeah. 
And so you have some authorities who really recognize it and think this is um, so important in terms of that personalization of um, identifying yeah. someone's needs and getting the right approaches. And others who say it's not in the diagnostic manuals, it's not in a nice guidance. So even though we can use that clarifying language, they, they choose not to. Um, on the PDA Society website, we do have listed independent centres that you can approach who we know, identify and assess for PDA. Um, right. Something we've done at the PDA Society, though, is because we feel really strongly it shouldn't be a postcode lottery. It shouldn't be down to your financial circumstances. No, not at all. Yeah, we published um, a practice guidance for identifying and assessing a PDA profile. And we sent that out to every single centre in the UK that undertakes neurodevelopmental assessments. so every centre should have that now and if someone um, is going through an assessment process and they're saying well we don't know about PDA you can go onto our PDA Society website you can look that practice guidance up you can print it off and you can give it to them and that takes them through step by step you know what to look for what criterion to assess against because we really want to help tackle that postcode lottery we want everyone to be able to go for an assessment and to say could you consider a PDA profile as well yeah definitely because like you say it's completely unfair if you've got somebody in one county that they're saying it could be and then in another county they're not even going to consider it it's just not fair on the child is it and you know the whole (laughs) reason is we need to be supporting the children with it so why is there this controversy surrounding PDA then because there is controversy I'm not wrong in saying that there is you know what, what is the controversy do we Yeah, absolutely. Um, So part of that is to do with research. Um, So there is some really, you know, good research out there about PDA. Um, However, in terms of, you know, the the years that we've got that research, um, if you compare it against autism or other types of conditions, it's still relatively young. Um, And we we agree more research is needed. Um, But because of where we're at with the research, um, PDA isn't recognised within the diagnostic manuals. So that's currently ICD-10 or 11 or DSM-5, and it's not within NICE guidance. So some authorities are saying, well, look, it's not there. So, you know, how can we identify it? Um, But what we say is, you know, there is research there. It's not like there's none, there is. And there's also a huge amount of lived experience of people who um, were PDA children who are now adults saying, I'm living and breathing this. And from teachers, um, we run training courses. Um, The majority of people asking for our training are teachers because teachers are there saying, we see this as well. Just as Jilly is saying here, she say, you know, you get those learners, you think this this isn't fitting the typical profile. So with that huge body of lived experience, we would hope that local authorities would be, um, you know, recognising that. But because of where we're at with the research, there is then that controversy. And there's also, I think it's important to acknowledge some people within the autistic community who say, you know, is this a backward step? Um, We've moved away from different terms uh, like Asperger's to autism spectrum condition or just saying autism. Yeah, of course. And there are some people a bit worried about identifying a PDA profile being a step back. for me personally, and I say this as an autistic person, I see it as a real positive because I have that experience of, you know, because people say, oh, you should look, um, you should look at um, personalization. You shouldn't need to have a PDA profile um, identified to do that. You know, I read all the books. I was like yeah. attending all of the um, courses to support my son. And I didn't get it until someone said to me, 
I think he's got a PDA profile. And that for yeah. me is just my personal experience of why that was so important. Um, and, you know, why I think we really do need to have that PDA profile identified. No, that makes complete sense. Absolutely. And I, I read, I was one of the books I've been reading was um, The Teacher's Introduction to PDA by Claire Truman, which I'll give a bit of a shout out because I think it's a really excellent book. Um, and one of the things she said to her was, she said that a colleague used to say to her, the researchers don't know if PDA exists, but the children certainly do. And that sort of stuck with me because it's like you're saying, you know, no matter if people disagree with the research, there are people with lived experience of this. There are children who are who have this like it's not you can't say it's not there if um if there are children who are experiencing it and that's really um yeah stuck to me so what why do you think it's important that pda is recognized then um i think helen's covered this a little bit but you know the primary reason um for identifying that pda profile are to help those living with pda and working with them to help make sense of this, you know, quite a complex presentation that is otherwise, I think, quite difficult to explain. And then yeah. to signpost the differentiated approaches. So moving away from the more traditional based, you know, autism strategies that usually recommended, um, yeah. as your learners will know, you know, speakers will, will know, routine, structure, rewards, consequences, yeah. and really based more on a very indirect low arousal style that allows more negotiation and collaboration. Yeah, and a bit of flexibility, I suppose. And that flexibility, yeah. So I think in schools, staff may have realised that though the learner may have an autism diagnosis, the child's needs are very different to the other autistic pupils and none of the approaches that work, as I found out. Um, So they they don't know, you know, they're just empty of of what ideas of what to do. So just being aware that, you know, they've got a, a child in their class that may fit the autism profile does give them ideas and strategies to try and understand that child better and work out those barriers to learning. So um, I think if we can keep, as teachers keep focused on needs-based support as opposed to labeling and diagnosing and not get caught too much up in the label because um, we do feel actually the PDA PDA friendly approaches will work for a lot of young people, um, especially with that sort of anxiety. Um, and if it's okay, I'll just give you a quote from one of my students yes, um, who said, look, you know, most youngsters with PDA are eager to learn. I think it's mm-hmm. important that schools and teachers know that because my teachers did not understand my condition at all. And quite often they thought I was deliberately trying not to learn. They gave me whatever work I'd missed as homework as they thought it would stop me from zoning out again in school but obviously it didn't help. This is just one example where I felt I was punished and made to feel naughty just for being PDA. Wow. So, you know, that's a sort of powerful message there. Yeah, um, this young is. girl is now, well, she's 17 now, but so it's not that long, you know, not long ago. No. So I think it's, it's, we have to acknowledge their learning differences. We have to change the way we teach, um, yeah. working collaboratively, flexibly and I think our role is much more a guiding and exploring role with the young person so that child-led approach that giving that freedom when you can sort of more like a facilitator of learning in a sense yeah Yeah. a mental facilitator um skilled at negotiating yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh I think is another skill that would is helpful um 
Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so interesting. And so a PDA doesn't just affect education either, does it? I think it's important to, you know, it doesn't just stop at school. It affects everyday life. Um, you know, I was watching one of your videos and again, I'll, I'll direct people to watch them. You've got some brilliant videos on the PDA Society website. And one of them was demand avoidance of the PDA kind. And there was a woman on there and she was saying that when her stomach rumbles, she feels like that's a demand in itself. Uh, that's, again, another thing that stuck with me because I had no idea that that was would be felt as a demand for her so yeah what are there any other ways that um lives are affected by pda that aren't education based like what else yeah. is affected oh it's such an important question because you know we there's there's kind of you know everybody experiences some form of demand avoidance but what yeah. we're describing here about pda is that uh, pathological demand avoidance so it's all encompassing it doesn't just happen in the classroom it happens in every aspect of your life um yeah. so that quote was talking about that internal demand and and my son's had that with drinking you know um, yeah where the demand of me saying could you could you have a glass of water it's a really hot day um before i knew about his pda was too much and then he didn't Gosh. drink and oh i my thought goodness, as a parent yeah. that is terrifying it's isn't awful. it and so i was like right okay i thought so you know, my view as autistic brain was right, right, it's knowledge. He doesn't realise how serious this is. So what did I do? Call up the doctor and say, can we have an appointment? And you can explain to him why it's so important he drinks. So then my poor son has the demand now of like having to go to the doctors, having to listen yeah. to the doctor, explain to him. And did that help? Absolutely not. Um, and I'm at my wits ends then because he's not drinking enough. It becomes a huge yeah. issue. Um, and we just kind of, I just was trying everything. And the thing that worked was... I stopped talking about it and I, and I still have today a table where we never talk about the need to drink but on that table is always in his favorite cup water and yeah. it's just out of sight there's no pressure and now he does regularly drink and it was just me having said because it was getting hot and me putting the pressure on him and the demand yeah. of drinking that meant that was too much so you know, there's lots of different types of demands there you know there's the kind of direct demands like asking someone to do something but then there's the indirect demands like praise actually that can be a demand in itself and yeah and i read this and i again another thing i had no idea and i found this fascinating that praise can be a demand in itself can you explain that a bit more yeah so it's, it's basically then you've got that anxiety about that future expectation because it's it's almost like the so you've done it well congratulations and the unsaid is and we expect you to do it well again so yeah. it's, um, you know, that can then be hard to understand, can't it? Because you think, oh, surely that should be a positive thing. And, yeah. you know, there can be then demands within demands. So like uh, the demand of going to the cinema, which you might really want to do, but you have to stay seated. And that knowledge of I've got to sit here through the whole of this, even though I really want to watch that film. Yeah. Like, the, it's like the social rules, in a sense, the social demands that are placed on us in those sorts of situations that you don't really think about, do you? But there are, yeah. Yeah, and then the things you you sort of feel you ought to do, like, all right, I've got to get up, I've got to get dressed. You know, if you break it down, that is a lot of demands in itself. Mm. So, so for example, in a, a day for, for my son, I, we're constantly looking at how can I really reduce those? So, yeah. you know, it's, um, and as Jilly said, sometimes it's like just letting things go. Like last night, my son was, you know, we talk about spoons sometimes, his spoons were full, and he wasn't able to have a shower. And I yeah. could have then gone, right, you've got to have a shower, you need to have that each day. But what we now do is I recognise, I take it, you know, within across a few days or a week, and I think, how important is that really right now? And actually, what's more important is the fact that he's tired and he needs to, you know, if we're going to do this, it's just going to be too much for him and really triggering. So I let it go. And yeah. 
it's having that flexibility is just so important to be supportive of um, your PDA children or your PDA learners. Can I ask, and I didn't put this in the questions that mm. um, we discussed, but I'm just thinking, like, what do you do if, if there's something that is non-negotiable, like a, a demand mm. that you need your child to do? What, what would you do in those circumstances? Because obviously it's all, you can let, like, they can let the shower go once every year so often, it doesn't really matter. But what happens if it's like really, really important, yeah. like safety-wise? Or... Absolutely. So I have that with my son. And I think there's a lot of people who think, all right, so what's been advocated here is no boundaries. And that's absolutely not it or no, no. demands it's not at all um you know i have conversations with my son um about you know what what are things about safety but i explain why and as jilly said um you know we find a lot of our pda children don't see hierarchy and if you talk to them like a child that can be really annoying but if yeah. you talk to them like an adult um so for example you know running outside the front door and straight into a busy road we have conversations yeah. about that and then it's about the framing so using the approaches um, that support pda learners around using indirect language rather than direct language looking okay. at the framing so a lot of um, pda learners respond quite well to taking a step back and saying for example you know this is um, uh, you know a, a rule that someone else has imposed I'm not here putting that demand on you it's yeah. just something you know that we we have to adhere to for that reason and um, Jilly what, what would you add to that? Yeah so I absolutely agree so sometimes um, it's very you know obviously in school there's some non-negotiables but it, it's again working with the young person so for example when I one of the first boys I work with um he decided he was going to be a car and change right. from, from being a boy to a car. This going into this fantasy world because it's a safe yeah. place to be. He can be in control. He can dictate what a car can do. So we had to go along with that in terms of if he wanted to go to PE, it was about changing his tyres for the uh, for the right um, activity. Uh, if he had a flat tyre, we had pretend to, to pump it up sort of thing, really. <laughs> and then he'd give excuses as to why he couldn't do something because cars don't have hands type of thing, really. <laughs> so it, it's sort of going with that. But when it came to non-negotiable, he would run around school at 90 miles an hour, crashing through the doors, knocking kids over, and blame the car that it was a crash or right. the, the person in front was a car that didn't put the brakes on properly or didn't indicate. So um, it was about negotiating with him. That, so that's not an absolute non-negotiable. That, that, that yeah. couldn't happen, basically. No. But um, And he wasn't prepared to listen to our side of the story or the other kid's side of the story. But actually, in this instance, going into his fantasy role-play world, I set up speed limits all around school. So through the corridors, it was 10 miles an hour, and we, we paced up what 10 miles an hour looked like to being <laughs> 70 miles an hour out in the playground when there were no kids around. Yeah. And from that day, he followed that. So, you know, they, they need to have a reason. You know, if, if they haven't got, that's just one example, but it's they need a reason for a rule, not just because we told you so. Um, yes. So I would write code of conducts that have come from somebody else, um, maybe a health and safety officer or yep. you know, about a certain thing in school as to why something couldn't happen. Yep. Um, I'll use social narratives. I know lots of your listeners might be using social stories, yeah. um, but we find they're a bit too prescriptive for our PDA okay. learners and too direct. Um, yeah. so I would often use a social narrative. Maybe they've got a footballer they're keen on or somebody in a group. And I'd say, well, you know, this guy, when they're feeling whatever the kid uses, angry or frustrated, 
this is what they do. I wonder if you fancy doing that. It's an option, you know, an option for yeah. you to try. So suggest, you know, is this a better way to deal with how you're feeling than those non-negotiables of hitting damaging yeah. property? A lot so of these things are just are similar to how you would talk to another adult. It just strikes me. You know, like, I just think, you know what you say? Like, if my husband said to me, right, Georgina, empty the dishwasher now. I'd be like, what? what? You know, we'd have, a, we'd have a full-on argument over it. I would not want to do it if he said it like that to me. But if he was like, oh, yeah, I've got a lot on it. Oh, I think the dishwasher needs emptying, blah, blah, blah. And just did it in that sort of way. I'd be more likely to do it. And it's it's a similar sort Is it a similar sort of thing? It's a similar sort of yeah. Um, yeah. way around it, isn't it? Or if I was told, you know, <laughs> we need to do this because so-and-so has said we need to do it. Or I'd be more likely to want to do it than... Yes. If he told me direct, yes. maybe it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the point. And I think, you know, that we have to accept there are some days when that non-negotiable is you don't hurt yeah. yourself, you don't hurt me, you don't yeah, damage yeah, property. Yeah. And then you have to, you know, sort of minimise those, those ground rules depending on the anxiety at, you know, at any given time, really. Yeah, so... <laughs> This, I noticed on your website there was a mnemonic for like strategies, which was Panda, P-A-N-D-A. I mm. can't spell Panda. <laughs> what, does, what, what are these strategies? Could you tell people about these, please? Okay, well, this was um, Devise, which is a fantastic resource that, and I really recommend anybody goes onto our, our website. And I don't know if we're sending links out to... I will make sure there are links. Sources. Yeah, um, I will make sure but, there are. Um, I recommend every school downloads it it's free and they have it up in their staff rooms etc especially if they've sort of uh, if they've done a training course and it's like a refresher but it was, it was it's really just a simple reminder of helpful approaches and the strong need that we need to tailor the environment and our teaching to meet you know these learners needs so the the overall message within the um mnemonic is to see the person explore their interests and yeah. really engage positively so breaking that down um we use the, the terminology panda because it's um like like pda learners pandas need the right environment to strive and without that right environment then, that. Um, <laughs> they'll they'll struggle so in terms of the p this is really about um picking your battles all the time days to minimize rules and picking your demands really yeah depending on their tolerance at ever, any sort of given t- time. It's about allowing that choice and control. So, you know, bringing that in, as we just mentioned, explaining a reason and a purpose for something that's going to happen, whether it's a lesson or whether it's something that they've asked for. Yeah. And those days, as, as Helen said, where there are days where they can't help, won't. Yeah. And they need to be accepted that sometimes something's not, not going to happen, but it's going back to those ground rules keep yourself safe, keep other people safe, don't damage property. So um, sort of the A is around anxiety management. Yeah. What works best, we definitely know, is a very low arousal approach to reduce that uncertainty and that their stress levels. It's about proactively recognising their build-up of avoidance, which is often displayed within a hierarchy of avoidance strategies. So they'll start at a certain level, maybe they'll you know, they may appear quite calm and able, but very quickly they'll start distracting us, which they're skilled at. They might make excuses um, and then um, they may sort of move on to 
fantasy world to incapacitating themselves. Then they move up to that non-compliance or what appears to be complete compliance. And then they've reached um, the panic attack because the demands haven't been reduced. So it's it's identifying and knowing their hierarchy avoidance strategies to reduce their anxiety, which is so useful. Yeah, to have. Just, so then you can, stop them getting to that stage yeah, where they're fight and flight yeah. and they can't cope because that must be exhausting for children. It's not yeah. fair for anyone to go through that, is it? Absolutely. And recognising that, that that flight, flight, freeze, that distress behaviour is a panic attack. Yeah. So then it's, it's, it's much more about empathy and support. It's coming from a nurturing approach yeah. rather than coming from a sanctions and a behavioural outcome. Gosh, so yeah, because imagine if you told somebody off at that point, that's, that's awful, oh, isn't that? Yeah, like, absolutely. Quite upsetting thinking about a child getting to that stage. And if you're thinking it is a, is a panic attack, telling a child off is having a panic attack, goodness. Hopefully yeah. it makes people think, you know, that it's rooted in anxiety. So, yeah. you know, if you lost your car keys or going for a job interview and you were suddenly shouted at or told off for that, then um, your, 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 yeah. your, your anxiety would rise very quickly wouldn't it so it's that's how we sort of rate down the a and then we talk about the n as being as we've referred to that negotiation and collaboration is is key where um we proactively help work with them as an equal to solve those challenges that we're they're, they're facing and that at the heart of it is a fairness and a trust yeah um a central and then obviously the D is all around disguising and managing demands. So it's about phrasing requests indirectly. It's mm-hmm. about monitoring a child's tolerance for demands accordingly and, you know, reduce if necessary. So it's really about knowing the young person well. Yeah. And often about doing things together to share that demand will yeah. all reduce anxiety. And the other other skills that, is that adaptation, you know, is really those PDA friendly approaches. It's about, I think a lot of these kids have a great sense of humor. Yeah. So bring humor into your teaching style, you know, distraction. Yeah, they can distract, but we're pretty, you know, we can keep up with that. We can do <laughs> distraction as well, just to reduce that anxiety, yeah. uh, novelty, you know, all the things actually you may not use with your other autistic learners. They can cope with novelty, that role play, um, spontaneity. Yeah. So adapting to their, you know, how they, how they um, learn best. We've talked about the flexibility. Um, I think as teachers, we always need a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. Absolutely. As well. Um, and to avoid the, you know, I'm the boss scenario yes. is what we're sort of saying. So that's in a, in a nutshell, roughly what the, the panda that's a really um, useful mnemonic, isn't it? It's really helpful. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah, so in terms of phrasing demands, so we spoke a little bit about that. Ha- have you got any advice on ways to sort of phrase the demands so they're easier for learners with PDA profile? I'm not saying so we can like so we can manipulate or we can get our own way. I'm just saying so that we can make it easier. Like if I wanted a child, if I was in a class and I wanted a child to do a certain piece of work, what would be a good way of phrasing that demand to get them to want to do it so that they could learn effectively? Yes, you're right, Jean. This isn't, we're not trying to trick a child. No. You know, we're just trying to reduce some of those unnecessary demands that to, to, to best support. And I think for me, language is, a, is key mm-hmm. to supporting uh, our PDA learners. And I think if we can come from the angle that uh, PDA demand avoidance is often the request 
and not the task. Right. That's the problem. So how we start discussions can make a huge difference to their engagement. So it is about inviting them to learn, making those casual suggestions and being quite um, using quite subtle adaptations to both our language and our tone can really benefit them. So we recommend um, using declarative language. So like a commentary. Yeah. Um, works really well, making those statements, uh, even rephrasing things to talk about an object rather than the person works well. Yeah. Simple things like starting and ending with requests with a, with a please, <laughs> starting with a please. Um, one of our adult PDAs says that helps her enormously. So some examples would be, you know, a typical routine in school might be telling children to get in line. Yeah. And an alternative would be, oh, I noticed it's time for lunch. Yes. So you're they're joining up the dots, basically. Um, put your coat on. Hmm, I wonder what the weather is like today. Yeah. Uh, turn to page 12. You might rephrase it as, oh, the information we want is on page 12. Yeah. So... They are um, kids who actually also can cope with quite complex language. So you can sort of soften the demand by putting it into quite a complicated sentence. Um, so an example might be, oh, I can see the class are clearing up. It must be nearly time for assembly. Shall I help you to finish up? So you're sharing the demand. Yeah. Do you want to leave them out? Or should we put, put it all back in the tray? So that's where that choice comes in. So you're in control, but you've given the young person that, that, that choice. Yeah. So it is turning, I wonder how, I wonder what the best way is, rather than I want you to. So I wonder if anyone knows the answers to these questions. Mm, I'm thinking we might need some paints. Yeah. Um, I could really use some help carrying these these bags sort of thing really so again there's a really good link um on our on our website i think also it's important to mention that language to avoid okay <laughs> so, yeah definitely i think people will be very keen to hear that so um starting with a no is just a massive trigger okay uh, for a demand avoidant child but this isn't you know this isn't about giving in this is no. just us questioning why are we saying no? And yeah. then um, if there is a no, maybe we need to give a reason for that. But it's like we learn to say no in a yes way. Hmm, yes, we can, but first we need to. Yeah. That's a great idea for another time. Yes. So you can see, you know, how you can just... Yeah, like we're going to do it after we've done this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, not saying no. Yeah, because a lot of the time we're not actually saying no, are we? We're just saying let's do it later or we'll do it after this. Yes, we can, but first we need to. So that that positive start does definitely help. Um, And I would say actually at this stage, also alongside that PDA-friendly language, ask the question to yourself, actually, does this demand need to be given at all? Yeah, do we have, you know, think of all those hidden, you know, Helen talked about demands within demands. How many of those hidden demands can be reduced? Do we have to tell them to line up when they hear the bell? Do we have yeah. to tell them to sit at their desk, to get their pens out, to write their mm. name and date at the top of the page? So within the phraseology, just step back, think about what is essential, 
And that pick in the battle, that's where you prioritise demands and remove some of those unnecessary demands. Because yeah. I'm just thinking about it from like my own children that have special educational needs, but I'm just thinking about the morning I've just had before, before the podcast, I've done the school run. And I'm just thinking the amount of demands I've put on both my children to get out the front door. And I, I'm sure parents listening across the country will, will be well aware of these demands as well. But, you know, they've had to, within 45 minutes, they've had to brush their teeth, they've had to eat their breakfast up, they've had to have a drink, they've had to put the bag on, they've had to get dressed. There's a whole, they have been demanded upon a lot before they've got to school. And as teachers, I suppose we've got to think that our learners, when they arrive, they've had all of these demands already, you know, since they've woken up and then we're adding extra ones. So of course we need to be thinking, do are all of these demands necessary? Can we, yeah, can we, can we phrase some of them as not demands and not actually put all of these demands on children because there are a lot, aren't they, in one day? So you mentioned it slightly earlier. Am I right in thinking that reward charts and behaviour systems, it, it they don't work for children with a PDA profile is that correct the the quick short answer is they don't they don't work but it's good to understand why they don't necessarily work um and again I um I'm I'm gonna give you a a comment from one of my students um who says that you know behavior-based school systems this was all my school would use and it just not does not work for a youngster with PDA. They just just worsens their anxiety, and therefore makes them more likely to be seen as sort of misbehaving at school. So that's yeah. from direct from a, a PDA learner. Gosh. So it's really difficult. Um, Helen touched on it a little bit, you know, um, both rewards and praise. By saying well done implies that, that you had an agenda, which they, if you like, fell for. Yeah, <laughs> um, it does, doesn't it? I hadn't thought of that either. It really does. Because if you say, oh, well done, it's like, oh, I did it. And I didn't, if, <laughs> if that demand was something they didn't, they were finding yeah. it difficult to do, then yeah, you were saying you've done it. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, as Helen said, it creates pressure to do the same the next time mm. um, in order to please. And actually, a couple of my kids said, Praise seems to come across to them as quite patronising. Yeah, and it P- is. Yeah. yeah. And PDA learners are very sensitive, I found anyway, in my experience, to being patronised. I suppose if they're seeing themselves as an equal as well, yeah. again, thinking of my husband with the dishwasher, if, he, <laughs> if I then did the dishwasher, I've got the dishwasher to do over there, this is why it's on my, on my mind, but if I then did the dishwasher after he asked me to do it and he went, oh, brilliant work, Georgina, well done, Re- great work, yeah. you're doing a really good job at being a wife today, I'd be fuming, and I suppose that might be similar for some for a learner that's, with a PDA profile, yeah. yeah Georgina, that's a perfect example, that, that's like words from this PDA student I asked that question to, um, so yeah, and rewards can be similarly prob- problematic add into the already pressurised demand and you know they don't see adults getting stickers or no again if my husband gave me a sticker for the dishwasher (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. um I think that actually the main point is it doesn't address the underlying difficulties which may be be printing them you know the thing for being achieved so in training we talk a lot about you know the iceberg theory where we see 10% above the surface but what lies underneath at 90% it's really important to always for teachers to look underneath the behaviour and ask ourselves, you know, question our own values, our beliefs, and just say, actually, what does this child need and how can I meet that need? Yeah, like you should do with um, all children, I suppose, as well, isn't it? It's thinking about the child. It is really. Um, I will say, because some of your listeners may be saying, oh, I've got, you know, PD learner and wards work well. They may work initially mm-hmm. because it was a novelty. 
they like novelty. Yeah. It may work because they were less anxious at that time. Mm-hmm. But I think over a sort of a long term, the, the reward systems that are used in schools, um, they find it very difficult, highly likely that they're going to sacrifice the reward because the anxiety to comply was just too great at a time. Yeah. At that time. So for me, it was all about positive reinforcement. It was all about acknowledging and describing good choices, but the effort and the attitude to getting to, to, to the point, you know, as they went along. Um, so, you know, often I think we resort to direction and correction, don't we? Um, and we forget about that positive behaviour, which often yeah. can get missed. So actually, but also I think we have to mention for some that can be too much even. Right. Um, even sort of praising their attitude and their effect. Um, it might have to be more indirect. So maybe you tell another person about what the child has done well. Yeah. And the child overhears it. Um, sometimes just a smile or a high five can work well. Um, and I think if we can acknowledge the times to help them feel proud rather than praise, that will build up that self-esteem and and support them more in their learning. Yeah, that sort of intrinsic um, feeling good about themselves for doing absolutely. something rather yeah, than just, because they've made someone else happy because they've done it. <laughs> I think, so. yeah, yes, Jordine, I think that's... Yeah, that's, now, that's when we helpful. shared the PDA resources on Twinkle recently, we had loads of interest from the home education community. Um, is this common? Are many learners with PDA profiles home educated and if so why do we think this is I think I think people might have gathered why this might be from from the discussion but I think it's important to discuss yeah no it's it's such an important question so um we published a report in 2018 called being misunderstood and we spoke to nearly a thousand five hundred people from the PDA community so that included parents uh, PDA adults professionals Um, and at that time six percent of parents to PDA children were telling us that they were electively home educating Um, we then had 70 percent of parents telling us so that this is like then we're looking at potentially one in seven um oh sorry seven in ten of the PDA learners are either electively home educated or home educated for other reasons so that could be um a child has been excluded they're unable to secure a place in a in a school that meets their child needs um or they were struggling all the time or regularly to get their children in school um so there are a lot of um, PDA children who have been home educated, but it is a mix of both elective home education and other reasons at, at all. And I mean, um, you know, I think as you said, as we've been chatting through, probably some of the reasons why, um, you know, children can thrive at home, you know, have, have become clear. Um, yeah. And, you know, we find within, when we look at PDA learners, you know, there are PDA children in mainstream, in special schools, in alternative placements and home educated, and it is a spectrum. So I think it's always important to start with the needs of each individual learner and looking yeah. at what meets their needs. I think the reason though why home education is something um, um, you know parents do look to is because there are still challenges around that awareness and understanding of PDA. You know, right. some some schools absolutely get it and you know really understand but there are also some schools who who don't yet have that awareness of PDA or might be struggling to see how to apply that and then for those PDA learners that can be really tough to be in an environment where they're they're not understood Um, and that's why we're so committed at the PDA Society to try and improve in that awareness and understanding so that people have that choice and I think that's the thing that I 
it does make me a bit angry sometimes is I hate it when families have that choice taken away from them. So elective home education, um, you know, some families can do that, some can't for financial reasons, even if they might like to. Um, And there are some families who actually want their child to be in school and can't, and they've applied to every school they can, and each school say no, and no one should have that choice taken away from them. Um, So that's something I think we really need to see uh, changed. Yeah, it sort of leads me on to one of my next questions, which was, so where can they get this information then? So there'll be teachers, senkos, et cetera, listening to this and thinking, right, I need to, hopefully, <laughs> they need to learn more about PDA to support their learners better. Um, I know I've read a few books and I've watched a few webinars on your website. Are they are they good starting points? Would you? Uh, the webinars are brilliant, by the way, and your um, videos are fantastic. Where where should people go? Where are we oh. sending them? Oh, there's so many places. <laughs> I mean... As a, as the CEO of the PDA Society, I'd be like, <laughs> you're going to say that? <laughs> I'm <laughs> maybe a little biased. Um, I mean, we have on their um, uh, home educators um, site, we have um, a page dedicated to teachers. So we do have those resources. Um, and we also signpost to a lot of other resources as well. And I think the fabulous thing is there's a real, um, uh, you know, richness of resources from PDA young people, from PDA adults. Um, And I think what better to learn from people who are living and breathing this themselves. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, and there's, and there's other organizations who um, are supporting PDA people too. So I'd say, you know, you might want to start with our website, but on there, we list as many of the resources as possible um, that other people have in addition to our own. Brilliant. How can they find your website then? What's what's the link? But I'll put it in the thing as well, but some people oh, like to listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, uh, PDA Society and Julie, have I got this right? .org.uk. I'm pretty certain yes. that's it. <laughs> I have a moment <laughs> questioning myself. Um, yeah. Um, so we're the only um, UK registered charity so, um, exclusively dedicated to supporting the PDA community. Um, uh, yeah. So I hope Brilliant. if people visit our website, that will um, be a helpful starting point. Yep, and you're on social media as well. You're on, I think I follow you on Twitter now. Yeah, yeah. So we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, and YouTube as well. So wow, you're um, on, on all most, of them now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so on most social media platforms. Um, yeah, and we uh, have an inquiry line. So that can be accessed through our website and that's accessible to both uh, PDA adults, to also parents and to professionals. And we aim to get back to people within uh, three to five working days. And that's a free service and you can access um, both emotional support and also practical guidance as well. And the people answering those queries are all people with lived experience. Wow, that's brilliant. Really, really useful. Oh, thank you so much. I've learned so much. I've been really looking forward to recording this because it is something I find really interesting and I really hope it helps, you know, shine a bit more of a light on it. I know you're doing wonderful work yourselves to raise awareness, but I hope this this helps a little bit as well. So thank you ever so much for joining me. And thank you so much. I mean, um, you know, we're we're thrilled to be partners with Twinkle and uh, to have this opportunity to come and to uh, to speak with you today. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Jordan. Such an interesting and important topic. Uh, do head over to the PDA Society's website for more information. Thanks again for listening to Sending the Experts with me, Georgina Durant.